Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Zelensky's efforts to break the deadlock on aid to Ukraine with his visit to Capitol Hill and the White House as domestic U.S. politics threatened to hand Putin a win on the world stage because of the blindness of partisanship that has Republicans unable to allow Ukraine to win because they see that as giving Biden a win. Joining us is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America, chair of the Cannon Institute Advisory Council, and a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary's Policy Planning Staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. He's the author of The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and his forthcoming book out in March is Collisions, The War in Ukraine and the Origins of the New Global Instability. And we'll discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, A Containment Strategy for Ukraine, How the West Can Help Kyiv Endure a Long War. Then we'll speak with Olga Lautmann, a non-resident senior fellow at the Centre for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. She has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe, with a focus on Russian intelligence operations, available at olgalautman.substack.com. She joins us to discuss how Putin is determined to win And because he does not believe Ukraine is a real country, he is free to destroy it and its people. Then finally, we'll assess what kind of media landscape we can expect if and when Trump takes over, having got a preview on Sunday with Elon Musk hosting some of the most despicable lowlifes on the planet, such as Alex Jones, along with the sex trafficker Andrew Tate, the disgraced General Flynn, and the cringeworthy opportunist Ramaswamy. Joining us is Mike Rothschild, a journalist and conspiracy theory expert whose work has examined scams, frauds, moral panic, conspiracy theories, and how their impact has gone from the online world into everyday life. He has testified to Congress on the threats of election disinformation and is the author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult and Conspiracy Theory of Everything, and his latest book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Michael Kimmage, a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. From 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. He's the author of The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and his forthcoming book, out in March, is Collisions, the War in Ukraine and the Origins of the New Global Instability. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, A Containment Strategy for Ukraine, How the West Can Help Kyiv Endure a Long War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kimmage. Great to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And President Zelensky was on Capitol Hill today. He didn't seem to have a particularly 
helpful time in the House speaking. He wasn't even allowed to speak to the members. He did speak with the new uh, Speaker, Mike Johnson. He spoke with the Senators, uh, one of whom, J.D. Vance, said it was grotesque and disgusting, not very encouraging, although Mitch McConnell said support for Ukraine is rock solid. And in the case of Mike Johnson, uh, he said he supports Ukraine, but he won't give them money. In other words, they're prepared to give money to a you know, to build Trump's border wall and change the asylum uh, protocols, but not not fund Ukraine. And then, of course, he had to go to the White House to try and help Joe Biden, who is not seem to making any headway with with the Republicans. So, uh, how do you see it? I'm trying to summarize what seems like a a pretty dismal day. That's true. It's obviously a situation for which the United States is going to pay a price in the sense of uh, credibility uh, and reliability, even if the money does come through for Ukraine. Uh, And at a time when Ukraine is facing a difficult winter and a few comparable problems, not identical, but comparable problems in Europe in terms of funding and commitment to Ukraine, I think that what we've seen already will certainly be a blow to Ukrainian morale, that uh, the road looks longer and steeper because of these, um, you know, because of the reigning confusion in 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 Washington. Uh, and that's the damage that's already been done by this situation. We'll see if Congress is able to come up with the money uh, at all. Uh, but even if it does, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be with this shadowed behind it, the situation. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, the wrangling in Congress is still soluble for the Biden White House, perhaps via some painful compromises on domestic political issues. And it's not as if uh, this is the only aspect of U.S. support. There's intelligence sharing, there's targeting, uh, there's the convening power that the U.S. has. Uh, Diplomatically, all of that is going to go forward full force, regardless of what uh, Congress does. And we can get into the role of Europe uh, in a moment, if you'd like, Ian, but uh, it's not as if Europe is giving up uh, on the war. So all of this is dramatic, but, uh, you know, there are limits to how um, to how important it is. And it's important to remember those limits as we try to figure out what's going on. But Michael, is this a case of domestic U.S. politics threatening to hand Putin a win on the world stage because of the blindness of partisanship that has Republicans unable to allow Ukraine to win because they see that as giving Biden a win? I think that that's premature, Ian. It could transpire that way. Uh, We'd have to think not in terms of the next couple of months, but the next couple of years. And we don't know what the congressional election of 2024 will bring, uh, but it's possible that the configuration will be different and perhaps better for uh, for Ukraine. But I think it's very important to underscore that over the course of the last 12 to 14 months, Russia has not had a significant battlefield victory. It's expended enormous amounts of manpower and materiel to conquer the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine, which is a city of 70,000 people of quite questionable strategic value. And Russia has been shredding its military once again uh, around the village of Avdiivka in Ukraine over the course of the last uh, couple of weeks. So by no means is U.S. commitment to Ukraine unimportant or peripheral or trivial. It's it's, it's very, very important. Uh, But it's not as if Russia is poised to win the war or even to make progress in the war. Uh, at the present moment. So, you know, I think what we're talking about here is about effectiveness of the Ukrainian war effort and longevity of the war. That's what's at stake with the U.S. commitment. But even if the U.S. were to pull back considerably, uh, that doesn't equate in any sense Ukrainian defeat in the war. But Russia's foreign ministry spokesperson, uh, in an interview that she did a couple of days ago, basically reiterated and emphasized Russia's maximalist objectives. And that seems to be where Putin's at, too. Doesn't Putin see Ukraine as a proxy war against the United States with an intention to basically diminish America on the world stage, if not remove it? I mean, that's certainly the Russian uh, media line. uh, And it's been enhanced by events in the Middle East since the 7th of October, where, um, you know, it looks as if... uh, 
the United States is divided between multiple conflicts and uh, not uh, sort of winning when it comes to global public opinion. And that's been a step forward for uh, for Russia. Uh, and I think the framing of the war that you describe is correct in terms of how the Kremlin you know, sort of sees Europe and sees uh, the world. And I think that those maximalist ambitions are still there. At the same time, I would emphasize uh, that uh, Russia is extremely far from realizing its maximalist ambitions. Uh, if you look at the ambitions with which Russia entered Ukraine in February of 2022, it was to take the capital city, partition the country, or perhaps even to take control of the country uh, as a whole. And Russia is unbelievably far from uh, from that reality. So yes, the ambitions are enormous. Uh, and I think that the mood is one of self-confidence at the moment uh, in Moscow. But the realities remain very checkered at best for Russia, if not uh, in fact, quite grim. I don't think it's a theoretical or practical impossibility that this is a very tough phase of the war for Ukraine at the present moment, and simultaneously a very tough phase of the war for uh, for Russia. We can't forget that as we observe the mayhem on Capitol Hill. But what about those on Capitol Hill? Don't they see the division in the world between frail and embattled democracies and the rule of law with the encroachment of criminal, gangster, mafia states, and authoritarian states. You've got Russia, China, Iran, Turkey, Hungary. And I noticed uh, that Putin just had a visit to the UAE, which is ostensibly a U.S. ally, and he was treated uh, royally in with great pomp and ceremony. So they're making inroads, the anti-democratic bloc. Well, I would qualify that a, a little bit. We've just had an election in Poland. In fact, um, you had the inauguration of a new Polish government uh, today, which has taken Poland from a authoritarian direction to a much more pro-European uh, democratic uh, direction. I think that there's a lot of consensus uh, in the United States about China. Uh, you know, whether the policy is correct is another matter, but there's strong consensus about the need to counter China, I think it's very possible to argue that since the 7th of October, that the U.S. has succeeded in containing uh, or deterring uh, Iran from entering uh, into a war against uh, Israel. That's a kind of, you know, counterfactual. You can't prove something like that. But I think it's at least a plausible interpretation uh, of the strong U.S. military commitment uh, to Israel. But I would agree that when it comes to Ukraine, the U.S. is really faltering. And here it's a quirk in some ways of the American political system, because probably the majority of Republicans and certainly the majority of Democrats agree that support for Ukraine should remain robust. Um, that's the consensus position on Capitol Hill. Uh, but you have a very thin majority in the House of Representatives, and that's being exploited by a small group of uh, Republican figures who, as far as I can tell, don't really have foreign policy in mind at all. They want to turn this into theater. They want to make it about the 2024 election. They only want to present Biden uh, in a bad light. And they want to be seen as good foot soldiers of, of, of President Trump, who's no enthusiast uh, of Ukraine. So uh, on this particular you know, sort of problem set, uh, the U.S. is tied in a knot uh, at the moment. And there's not really for the Biden White House an easy way out because Congress is a co-equal branch of government and Congress has the power of the purse, as they're showing. Uh, and so they really do underwrite American foreign policy uh, in important ways. But, uh, you know, across the board, I wouldn't say that this, the situation is that bad. Uh, but I do have very grave concerns about where things are trending with Ukraine. There have been uh, recent uh, press reports that European leaders and NATO officials are alarmed at the prospect of a new Trump presidency, given that Trump is way ahead in the polls in terms of uh, uh, of his own, uh, of his chances of becoming the nominee for the Republicans. And in some polls, he's ahead of Biden. So it's not much of a reach to us to assume that Trump would pull the U.S. out of NATO, at least would try and would help Putin out enormously, as, he's, as he appeared to have done in the time that he was in the Oval Office. So does that mean that there's got to be a wake-up call, that if you want to save Ukraine, you better do it soon? Or is there any way to change this dynamic where you've got the real possibility of, uh, you know, somebody that's, to many people, seems to be under the sway of Putin, becoming the next president of the United States? 
Well, let me offer you two points uh, in return, uh, Ian. The first um, is, um, you know, hypothetical, but uh, worth at least contemplating. And this is that the four years in which Trump was president, his first term, if that's what it was, uh, are four years in which there's a huge amount of disarray between Europe and the United States. And most of that is generated by uh, Trump. But at the same time, Trump was or his administration was quite uh, committed to European security. So there are two countries that enter the NATO alliance when Trump is president. Spending on Europe uh, by the Trump administration on European security goes up. It doesn't go down. Uh, and I think, as we all know, it's the Trump administration that supplies Ukraine with Javelin anti-tank weapons, which were actually pivotal in the first couple of uh, weeks of the uh, of the war. That is linked to Trump's impeachment in complicated ways, but uh, the fact of the weapons being delivered uh, is, uh, you know, is is sort of there uh, as a matter of uh, uh, of public record. So it's not definite or 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 proven that Trump's second term would be a term of. Uh, you know, sort of complete lack of commitment to to Europe, or as you mentioned, uh, of the United States withdrawing uh, from NATO. But I can certainly understand the European concerns, because most likely a second Trump term, if it comes to pass, uh, would be more radical than uh, the first. Uh, I think to make a second point about Europe and what Europe should do at the present moment, uh, if um, if this is feasible with the EU and with domestic politics, uh, in Europe, uh, in a sense, the answer to a possible Trump presidency and the answer to the crisis, current military crisis in Ukraine is the same, that Europe should do more. Uh, and it should prepare itself not to win the conflict in the next 12 months, because that's probably undoable on the battlefield, but it should prepare itself to build up the structures of resilience that Europe itself may need uh, and that Ukraine will need going forward. Investments in armaments, munitions, artillery shells, uh, a lot of these practical things probably more useful to Ukraine than talk of EU membership uh, or NATO membership. So if Trump is elected, you know, 12 months from now, Europe should have uh, more to stand on than it currently does. If Trump is not elected, I don't think that those investments would go uh, to waste. So in some ways, you know, maybe Trump dramatizes the issue, uh, but uh, the path for Europe is, is pretty clear. It just needs to do more on its defense and uh, on Ukraine's defense. And in terms of of an alternative to a military solution or a military necessity, do you see any diplomatic hopes here? I know Charlie Kupchin and others have talked about a possible path, but as I mentioned earlier, the foreign ministry spokeswoman in Russia just made it clear that Putin's really not interested in negotiating, and he wants to, you know he has maximalist demands. Going back to his, he in effect doesn't even think that, that, that Ukraine is a real country. So I don't see how you can have peace with a partner that wants to win at all costs and, and is willing to wait the West out. But on the other hand, not to, you know, to be totally pessimistic here, is there any glimmer of an alternative to doubling down on, mili on military uh, investments, even if the Republican House and Senate are stalling them? I'm completely with you, Ian. I don't see a path for a negotiated settlement, and I do see a few costs uh, even pursuing that uh, openly, which the Biden administration uh, is not doing, despite calls by Richard Haas and Charlie Kupchin and others to uh, to think about this path. Of course, we don't really know what Putin is thinking. It's good to be uncertain about that uh, and to acknowledge that we don't have a lot of great evidence. I wouldn't take MFA statements from Russia, Ministry of Foreign Affairs statements from Russia uh, at face value <laughs> on anything. Uh, but um, in that sense, it's probably worth having back channel conversations, which I think are probably ongoing between Washington uh, and Moscow. We have a wonderful diplomat in the figure of Bill Burns, the, the director of the CIA, who's, you know, I think very well positioned to have private conversations about Russia. Uh, about where Russia is is trending, uh, and if the war is 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 being harsh on Russia, and they want to change gears and moderate, um, at the very least, we should be listening uh, and uh, not trying to ignore the signals that are coming from. So, but Moscow. Michael, who who is uh, Bill Burns talking to, on the Russian I side? No I have no clue. I have no um, information other than what's on the the public record. But there is, you know, reporting about him meeting with. Um, members of the Russian government over the course of the last 
uh, two years and and what the channels of communication are, I simply uh, don't know. All I mean is that he's an excellent candidate for that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, if there is something to be negotiated, it's not going to be in public with big deals and signed documents between Foreign Minister Lavrov and Secretary Blinken. It's going to be something uh, much more covert and private. But, you know, what we don't know about, we can't speculate too much about. But that's maybe there in the background. I think that Russia has not moderated its aims. I think Russia is making a very clear economic investment in armaments and in waging war. Uh, it's done pretty well keeping its access to global markets and keeping its economy afloat. Uh, and I think Putin at the moment, if anything, uh, he might be engaged in hubris that he can sort of do what he thought he could do at the beginning uh, of the war. If that's true, uh, then this is not at all a time to uh, to negotiate. And of course, what we're talking about with Congress is pertinent here. If Congress is going to pull back support for Ukraine, uh, that makes negotiations not easier, uh, but more difficult because you'd be doing negotiations from a position uh, of weakness. So I, I think it's just not uh, an available path. And I don't think it will be an available path as long as Putin is president. And so what I would advocate for, and I believe I've made this argument already on your program and other conversations, is a resolute patient and stalwart policy of containment, that if we can't beat Russia in Ukraine uh, flat out, uh, we can certainly do a lot to contain the spread of Russian military power uh, in, uh, in, in Ukraine. Uh, and that to me is a vastly preferable approach than negotiations or looking for concessions. Well, Michael Kimmage, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's always a great pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kimmage, who's a professor of history and department chair at the Catholic University of America and chair of the Kennan Institute Advisory Council and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. And from 2014 to 2017, he served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff at the United States Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. He is the author of The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and his forthcoming book out in March is Collisions, The War in Ukraine and the Origins of the New Global Instability. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, A Containment Strategy for Ukraine, How the West Can Help Kiev Endure a Long War. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how Putin is determined to win the war on Ukraine, and because he does not believe Ukraine is a real country, he is free to destroy it and its people. Никакого завтра больше нет. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Olga Lautman, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also a creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. She has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe with a focus on Russian intelligence operations available at olgalautman.substack.com. Welcome to Background Briefing, Olga Lautman. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Olga. And... Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, is on Capitol Hill in the White House today trying to salvage this aid package of $60 billion that's been blocked by both the Republican House and the Senate. And it looks like the worst possible scenario is that this could be a huge win for Putin if Trump comes back into the White House. Of course, that would be perfect for Putin. He would have his guy in the White House, who would then probably pull the United States out of NATO. And there's no question that Trump's acolyte, Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, will do anything to please uh, Donald Trump, since he led in the stop the steal effort of Trump's to stop the certification of Biden's electoral victory in the 2020 elections. So it looks as if Mike Johnson 
is basically carrying Trump's water here with Ukraine tying in the aid package to building the wall, which is, of course, is a Trump project on the southern border. So are we in this surreal situation where, where the United States will waste billions of dollars on, a, on Trump's wall on the southern border while starving Ukraine at its moment of need? I mean, uh, you see Russia's decades-long, um, you know, active measures playing out in the United States and coming into fruition. Um, first of all, this is not only a huge win for Putin if, um, you know, Trump gets back into office, Russia will do everything um, to try to put him back into office. And they will interfere in the U.S. election. They're going to interfere in key uh, European elections to incite any um, Western, uh, you know, uh, politicians who have not only supported Ukraine, but have supported democracy and have taken measures against Russia in their long list of aggressions and atrocities that they're committing across the globe. Um, so it would be a very huge win, but we also have to be very vigilant because Russian intelligence operations are going to be so sky high this time around in 2024 elections that it will make 2016 look like child's play. And this is not only a win for Putin, this is a win for all autocrats, because what the Republicans are doing are playing a very, very dangerous game by, you know, not only siding with Putin and making inflammatory statements against Ukraine, but also they're giving a signal to China. They're giving a signal to Maduro, who is in preparation of you know, invading and annexing parts of Guyana and to other autocrats around the world that the international norms and laws that we currently have, you know, uh, can be overturned easily and that the West and the international community will not stand up and fight for these post-World War II norms. But aren't the Republicans taking their cues from Donald Trump? Doesn't it get back at the end of the day to Donald Trump's relationship with Putin and the extent to which Putin controls Trump? Absolutely. And I mean, it's not only that Putin controls Trump. Trump has had a very long history with Russia going back to the Soviet Union since the 1980s. And um, I mean, he traveled to Moscow in 1987 looking for a Trump Tower deal and to St. Petersburg. So this goes back to, you know, again, Donald Trump, who himself is a dictator, has a dictator mentality, absolutely has, you know, uh, zero concerns for maintaining a democracy and actually loves the system of of Russia, you know, this autocratic system where you can order your enemies uh, to be jailed, your opposition to be jailed, uh, judges and anyone else you know, to be jailed or murdered. This is a system that Trump has praised. And I mean, he's shown his, you know, uh, affinity for autocrats, for Putin, for Kim Jong-un, and for basically the worst evil on this earth. So is there any hope then that Ukraine will get this aid from the United States? What's your reading on what's happening today on Capitol Hill and at the White House? I do ultimately think that there will be enough um, Republicans who have been supportive of Ukraine, um, along with Democrats who, you know, pretty much all of the Democrats are supportive and understand the urgency of providing aid to Ukraine in order for them to win against Russia. Um, I do think that ultimately it will go through, but in the meantime, it makes the United States look extremely weak. And I mean, it's an embarrassing situation that they're putting us in. It's sending all the wrong, wrong signals to autocrats around the globe. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I think United States will come through. I mean, they understand that if Russia, uh, you know, succeeds in Ukraine, they have, first of all, they've voiced for decades uh, their desire to take Ukraine. And then 
2014, they launched an invasion into Ukraine and then a full-scale invasion in 2022. But it's not only about Ukraine. I mean, for decades, they have spoken about taking Moldova, about taking the Baltics, about, you know, Kazakhstan and other countries that used to be under the Soviet Union. So they're not going to stop in Ukraine. And I think the United States, well, now at least I hope the United States understands that should Ukraine fall, all of European security is, you know, at risk. And this will ultimately lead to Russia, you know, uh, being aggressive against the NATO nation. And then we would have to send troops, you know, to actually take, uh, have a direct confrontation with Russia. So I think the United States at the end will go through with it. But this is embarrassing for the United States of America, who has unlimited resources, who, you know, stands as the pillar for, you know, democracy, for human rights, to have this publicly air out because one party has chosen, you know, to follow uh, one individual, Donald Trump, versus the national security of the country. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's, it is surreal. And do you think that the Europeans could pick up the slack if the U.S. Uh, drops the ball here? Well, they temporarily can pick up the slack, but we already saw in World War One and Two that Europe alone is not strong enough, you know, to fend a, a, a large war on their, you know, shores, and that ultimately the United States has to get involved. So, I mean, temporarily, I think Europe may be able to pick up the slack, but the bottom line is that Europe and the UK look for, you know, two United States, and United States should be a leader, as it always has, in fighting for uh, democracy and for international norms and laws and, you know, uh, institutions. And right now we have really dropped the ball with this. So what's going on in the Kremlin then with, obviously, Putin... (laughs) has supposedly spontaneously, according to Peskov, uh, decided to run for a second term because uh, the public want him, and particularly the the military want him, uh, they don't want him to, they want him to continue the war. And then that's their narrative. Uh, So he's tied himself totally to this war, not that public opinion necessarily matters there, but the fact that he's now running for president again and he'll choose some patsy to run against him. But at the same time, Navalny's disappeared. So what do you think's going on there? Are they brazen enough to kill Navalny? I don't think that they would kill Navalny because they're still, you know, he is still kind of, a, you know, a bargaining chip, um, and they can use him for negotiations. I think also that's a distraction as far as, you know, with uh, Navalny disappearing on the same day that, you know, Putin announces, quote unquote, that he's running. First of all, he's a dictator. He's not planning to go anywhere. The only way that Putin will, you know, step out of power is if he's assassinated while in power or if he dies while he's in power. I mean, there should be no illusion that there are going to be any elections the whole thing has been a sham for decades, and it frankly goes back to the Chaka system over the past century. This is how Russia is. Um, as far as with Navalny, I think maybe it's just, you know, a distraction and signaling domestically, um, you know, that if any, not that anybody would attempt to really challenge Putin, but in the case that anyone attempts to, you know, think about challenging Putin that, you know, this is your fate. Um, But again, I mean, that's not even shocking news. It's, you know, (laughs) he's a dictator. He's not going anywhere. Um, And as far as, you know, uh, the war being tied, the war shouldn't be tied solely to Putin. It should be tied to all of Russia because you have all the Russian, you know, elite who are funding the war, um, supporting the war. And you have all the Russian, you know, uh, government officials uh, doing the same. And going back to the aid, 
you know, Russia has billions and billions and billions of dollars parked in the West, in the United States, across Europe. If the United States does not want to take money out of their own budget to send to Ukraine, then they can uh, take the seized assets of all the oligarchs, um, you know, that are part of the system funding this war and have been since 2014 and use that money to send to Ukraine. And that wouldn't cost one dollar to taxpayers. So, I mean, there are also other options. And it just shows you that the Republican Party is not as concerned about solving the border, which they haven't been able to do for the past, you know, four decades. I mean, my whole life I've been hearing about the border, Um, that this is more of them uh, assisting Vladimir Putin and Russia in attempting to sabotage, you know, uh, any support for Ukraine. And you see the same Hungary at the same time, uh, Orban, who is a Kremlin puppet, who allegedly uh, sent um, you know, his people to D.C. to meet with Republicans through the Heritage Foundation in order to stop aid for Ukraine. So, I mean, you see this isn't just, you know, it's ha- coming from multiple avenues at the same time with the end goal of breaking all support for Ukraine. So, Olga, but how do you think Putin is doing I'm not that there's a democracy and public opinion matters and that the elections are rigged and a foregone conclusion. But nevertheless, there's got to be some pressure inside Russia against this war because of the massive casualties. I mean, they only had 15,000 dead in Afghanistan and they had to pull out of Afghanistan, presumably because of public opinion. So here they've got up to, what, 300,000 casualties at least, 200,000 dead, surely that's having an impact. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, look, Putin runs, you know, is a dictator. He's a thug and he will do everything to silence any, you know, uh, dissent as uh, has been done for centuries. Um, But it is definitely having an impact on Russia. And the thing with Russia historically is, you know, everything looks normal on the surface. And then one day you wake up to the news that the country has collapsed. So there are definitely um, uh, frictions inside of Russia. They have been building since, I mean, uh, last fall of 2022 when Ukraine launched a successful counteroffensive against Russia and, you know, and basically exposing their military uh, as a facade. Um, So I do think that, um, you know, there are definitely strains and you've seen the strains. I mean, you know, Putin went out of his way to allegedly murder Prigozhin. And um, he wouldn't, you know, very publicly also. And I mean, he saw this as a real threat. And you saw even the Wagner fight with um, the defense ministry. Like you see all of these, uh, you know, factions fighting amongst each other. And the only thing that is going to happen is these uh, frictions are going to grow deeper. Um, And also the sanctions are taking hold. And we need to make sure that we apply more sanctions and tighten any loopholes to uh, stop Russia from, you know, carrying out their schemes to bypass sanctions because um, domestically sanctions are having an influence. You see Russia's economy right now is, I mean, you know, by the month, it's getting weaker and weaker and eventually it will lead to discontent among the people, maybe enough for them to to finally start speaking out. But in terms of the war propaganda, first of all, most of the casualties are, are poor people from the, uh, you know, the east and the Siberia and, and the hinterlands, um, just, you know, signing up for the money. They're not really recruiting the kids from the, the cities, uh, the educated one, certainly not the children of the elite. They're not uh, being sent into the meat grinder. But my understanding is that the propaganda machine that justifies this war is basically telling the Russian people that they're really fighting the Americans, not the Ukrainians. 
And is that working? I mean, uh, my understanding is I had talked yesterday to the former chief Russian analyst of the CIA who said that uh, that it is working, that the Russians, you know, by and large, the population, believes that they're fighting uh, America, not Ukraine. I um, don't think that um, the public, uh, you know, as far as... Uh, Look, Russians, again, historically over the past century have never really been political. This is the reason that there is no civil society inside the country. Um, So I frankly, I mean, if today they tell them they're fighting, you know, Ukraine tomorrow, they tell them they're fighting United States after tomorrow, they're fighting Africa, they're fighting China, Iran. I mean, I think it's not really going to have any impact on the Russian population Historically, they, um, I mean, this is the propaganda that's been used in the Soviet Union, that it's always the fight against the United States. Um, But I don't think it has that much of an impact because with Russian, with the Russian population, what does have an impact is not as much the propaganda that is being fed because they really, really, you know, they're just, one of the countries that for centuries, regardless how dire the circumstances are, they just don't seem to want to fight or stand up, you know, against uh, Tsarist or against communist or now against uh, Putin's regime. I do think when it starts hitting them where there is, you know, I mean, you have to towns and regions across Russia right now who with people not receiving salaries because of the tightening of the budget. I think when it starts hitting them personally, then it's not that they will go against the regime, but that there will just be more anger and just, you know, more chaos building inside of Russia. And you brought up a very good point. And I had actually, you know, written about this a year ago that Russia was not Uh, mobilizing people, you know, out of Moscow or St. Petersburg or, for that matter, ethnic Russians. You saw the majority are minorities across Russia who were being mobilized, which basically I, you know, had pointed out that Russia was not only uh, carrying out genocide in Ukraine, but they were also carrying out ethnic cleansing inside of Russia. And this is where you saw regions like Ingushetia and Dagestan, you see a lot of tension building up because for every, you know, one Moscovite who was being mobilized, you had maybe 15 people from Dagestan being sent to the front lines, knowing that they are going to a meat grinder with absolutely zero preparation, zero training, and you know, very, very little military equipment. So Russia's goal, and again, this is something that goes back to even World War II, is to throw bodies. And that's it. They have no, you know, logistical planning. They don't have, um, you know, concern for life. Their main concern is just to throw as many bodies as they can onto the front line and use them as cannon fodder in, in attempts of, you know, breaking forward. And that's it. So I think um, eventually you will see all these pressures because that's another pressure point. Dagestan is an excellent pressure point. And you will see these pressures continue building, 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 and you're going to just see more chaos, more fighting between, you know, uh, the nationalists inside of Russia and the Muslims and uh, the Jewish, because the anti-Semitism inside of Russia is sky high right now. And you're just going to see more chaos developing inside the country as Putin continues this, you know, uh, full-scale invasion. Well, Logan Lapman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I'd be speaking with Olga Lapman, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who's also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. She has a new Substack newsletter covering Russia, Ukraine, Eastern and Central Europe, with a focus on Russia's intelligence operations, available at olgalautman.substack.com. We're going to take a recession break and back with an assessment of what kind of media landscape we can expect if and when Trump takes over 
having got a preview on Sunday with Elon Musk hosting some of the most despicable lowlifes on the planet. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mike Rothschild, who's a journalist and conspiracy theory expert whose work has examined scams, frauds, moral panic, conspiracy theories, and how their impact has gone from the online world into everyday life. He has testified to Congress on the threats of election disinformation and is the author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, A Cult and Conspiracy Theory of Everything, and his latest book just out is Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Rothschild. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. And the caveat is, of course, is even though you've written your latest book is Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, you're not actually a multi-billionaire banker, right? Uh, sadly, no. Uh, I, I have to uh, work for my supper just like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you, you've done some heavy lifting here because I couldn't watch what happened on Sunday on the X platform, formerly Twitter, where Elon Musk hosted a group of some of the most disgusting people on the planet. I mean, Alex Jones, who he's rehabilitated, Andrew Tate, the misogynistic right-wing influencer indicted by Romanian authorities on charges of human trafficking and rape, Laura Luma, a right-wing extremist, Islamophobe, retired General Michael Flynn, Jack Posobiec, the far-right internet character that just spews out made-up nonsense on a daily basis, and, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy as well, and Congressman Matt Gates, I believe he popped in. So you watched uh, this stuff. Why is he doing this? I mean, this he's obviously, uh, Musk has turned into the nastiest little troll on the planet and the richest man on the planet to boot. Why is he doing this? I, I really believe that Elon Musk at heart is an extremely insecure person. And like all extremely insecure people, he wants to be liked. And he wants to be thought of as funny and cool and edgy. And like he says things that other people aren't allowed to say. And he, you know, he delves into forbidden topics and he's super interesting. He's really not any of those, but he really wants to be thought of that way. So he surrounds himself with people who look at him as a means to an end. You know, if you've got somebody like Elon Musk, if you've got somebody like Jack Posobiec, their brands are uh, are elevated by being around Musk, by being in his orbit, by getting access to his fan base. So I think what you really have here is kind of a, a, a nexus of mutual advantage rather than anybody who actually believes in anything and wants to do anything about it. All of these people are trying to build up their brands, trying to get, you know, expand their customer bases, their subscriber bases. Uh, and if you got somebody like Alex Jones trying to get access back onto Twitter with following before he was banned. But right wingers and people like Donald Trump have always wanted, craved celebrity contact and also celebrity approval. But Trump was always considered a complete joke by the cool people in New York and in his election campaign. He couldn't get any celebrities to endorse him. You know, <laughs> who, who was it? I think he got Scott Bayo. Is that his name? Uh, Scott Bayo. I think he got Roseanne. I mean, the, the sort of degrade, you know, reality show has-beens. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. what, what powers a lot of Trump is the same thing that powers Musk in a lot of ways, is the insecurity, is the right. needing people who you think are cool and funny to think you are cool and funny. Donald Trump right, has but, never but been funny. What puzzles me, though, is 
does if Musk wants approval, he's not going. He's not getting approval from the cool people and the and the real celebrities. He's getting approval from the bottom feeders and the ugliest and nastiest people on the planet. I mean, right? I don't get right. that. But these are the people who think that he's a genius. The vast majority of people don't think he's a genius, or at least they don't now. But these are the people who think all of his ideas are great and think he's going to yeah, you know, colonize Mars and all this other stuff. So he is doing what people have insecure people have done is surrounding himself with people who think he's great, who think he's clever, who make him feel good. So, you know, it just happens that those people are also uh, misogynistic, anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists. So he's now losing money right hand over fist right and in fact just recently told his advertisers to go f themselves right right uh so what's the <laughs> the strategy dare i use that word what's what, there what's is the strategy absolutely then? there's absolutely no strategy he's um you know anybody who thinks that this is part of some grand plan that he you know he's plotting and some sort of secret conspiracy with the other power brokers to you know, destroy democracy. I mean, you can just watch it. He is making all of this up as he goes. He has no idea what he's doing with this platform. He really just wanted, you know, he claimed he wanted to buy Twitter because he didn't want to be censored and he wanted it to be a place for free speech, but then he tried to back out of the deal. The only reason he ended up buying Twitter is because he had to. And he is running it into the ground because he doesn't know how it works or what people get out of it. And he wants to be able to say anything that he wants and re-platform all of the people who want to say whatever they want because they all think that that's what free speech is. Right, but how long are governments and big corporations and, you know, a lot of people? I mean, this program, Background Briefing, has a, has a Twitter or X feed. It's hard to avoid it. So at one point, is he going to give it up? Is he going to let it go return to the way it was before, before it became a free-for-all? Or is he just going to take well, it all, a, all the way down? Or can these question. governments start boycotting it? I mean, a few people have started to boycott it, and you know, Facebook came up with an alternative that hasn't really caught on. So what's the, what's the answer here? Because this guy, Musk, the richest man on the planet, is a, is a total menace. He really is. Well, I think we've seen the EU try to take some legal action against him uh, for not curbing hate speech. But I do think what's really going to for some kind of changes is advertisers continuing to flee. And we've seen many advertisers drop them already. Of course, he's now filing lawsuits or claiming he's going to file lawsuits against some of the groups that are exposing some of the things he's doing. Uh, you know, advertisers don't want to be involved with this stuff. I think very few companies really want ads for their products showing up next to uh, deranged rants and conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism. That's just not what most people want out of a social media service. Most, most users don't want that. So they can say without any evidence of that they're, you know, X is drawing in millions more users, that their impressions are way up. They're, they're not showing any, any evidence that supports that. And we're seeing that that's not true. We're seeing advertisers fleeing and the companies that are advertising are basically just bottom, you know, bottom basement internet companies and like fake Chanel purses and stuff like that. So there's going to be a point where this is just losing him so much money that he's either going to hang out of it out of spite or try to dump it for whatever he can get out of it. And we just don't know which that's going to be yet. But free speech doesn't mean you let Alex Jones go on your platform and lie about Sandy Hook when we know what he, what he did and why he was sued and why he was sued and, had, and got a billion-dollar judgment against him, even though he's not obviously not paying it. I mean, the guy did the most disgusting thing imaginable. These parents lost their kids or blown away with an assault rifle. They could barely recognize the, the bodies of their own children. And this SOB starts this conspiracy theory that the whole thing never happened and it was a false flag operation in order to ban guns in America. And then, of course, he uses his platform, InfoWars, to spread hate and lies and rile up people uh, and then shake them down for money to buy, you know, gold bars and 
and you know male potency supplements. I mean, that's what the guy's all about. He's a total disgraceful yeah. bottom feeder. Absolutely. And one of the things that really distinguishes this sort of Elon Musk version of free speech is that they don't really understand it. They think free speech is everyone just says whatever they want and there's no consequences to it. And there are consequences. There are consequences to lying relentlessly about a group of people over and over again. Those people get fed up and they sue you. And, you know, if Elon Musk wants a platform where everybody just says whatever they want to say, he owns it. He can he can do that. It's just that people are not going to be interested in advertising on it. People are not going to be interested in using it. And it's going to eventually just uh, decay due to lack of funds and lack of interest. And if that's really what he wants to do, well, I guess he gets to do that. But I I don't think that he's going to recoup his investment by doing that. Well, then what can be done here? Do we just, you know, just have to accept this poison and pollution of the public discourse? And I mean, if Trump takes over, this will be mainstream media, won't it? I mean, the rest of the press, the mainstream press, are the enemies of the people, according to Trump. So if he puts the enemies of the people in jail, then Musk and these other bottom feeders, they'll become the mainstream media, will they not, in a second Trump term? Well, I think that's what they want. I think these people really believe that another Trump term is going to be their ticket to uh, essentially rewriting information and deciding that they are the arbiters of truth and they get to decide who says what on what platform, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty nightmarish vision. And I think that a lot of people have stayed on Twitter simply because there is a real possibility that Musk is just going to lose interest in it or he's going to be forced to sell it. And whoever buys it, they take it public again, will kind of restore it to what it used to be. And it is still a useful platform. It's just not a platform that at least I personally would ever want to give any money to. Right. Well, that's the problem. You know, a lot of people find it useful and it's now become an embarrassment. And of course, this is just in closing. It's this guy is so crazy. Here he is spreading out this poisonous people with these poisonous garbage with these horrible people. Uh, At the same time, he's running around the world trying to be an elder statesman, ingratiating himself with Netanyahu and Erdogan at the UN. So... uh, I don't know that he's going to end up as a respected global figure. Uh, I think he's, I was going to say he's urinating into the wind, but of course urinating <laughs> was, was was what uh, Ramaswamy did on the yes, uh, yes. live feed, and that got the headlines yes. instead of yeah. what we're talking about, which is the poisonous right. content of this uh, forum. So there you go. That's the way it is. As Walter Cronkite used to say, I thank you for joining us, uh, Mike Rothschild. Absolutely. Thank you. And again, I mean, speak with Mike Rothschild, who's a journalist and conspiracy theory expert whose work has examined scams, frauds, moral panic, conspiracy theories, and how their impact has gone from the online world into everyday life. He has testified to Congress on the threats of election disinformation and is the author of The Storm Is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult and Conspiracy Theory of Everything, and his latest book is Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye for now.
The guy that lived next door in 305 